everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Terry Talks Fiction. Today, we're going to be talking about the Marvel Multiverse cartoon series, What If? All the episodes are up now on Disney+, and they have been for a little while, so... I'm going to dive pretty much straight into spoiler territory in this discussion. If you care about such things, then I highly recommend you go and watch the series through first. The only spoiler I'll give you straight up for free is that it is worth it. It's a great series, and there's some really interesting elements uh, I can't wait to talk about in it. So, now that you've all gone and watched it, if you hadn't already, we can get straight into it pretty much. I'm sort of blazing through the intro here because with nine episodes to discuss, <laughs> I don't want to spend you know the next two hours of your time going through the different things that I'd really love to hit uh, for each of these episodes. They were pretty much all of them pretty fantastic, I thought. There was a real advantage taken of the possibilities of having a multiverse around, which I really appreciated for the most part in taking characters in different directions and exploring different things. Now, I've said this on the show before, but I didn't grow up with the Marvel comics. Uh, being a good little Australian lad, uh, my comics entry point was The Phantom. And then once I sort of got off to university, had a little bit of my own money coming in, I sort of delved back into some of DC's backlog with a lot of Bat Family comics and some Superman. So I know that the What If series is something that has existed in Marvel comics for a long time, but it's not something that I've ever really experienced, with the exception of Marvel Zombies, which I sort of dove into and had a bit of a read of, and just some assorted single issues of various X-Men or Thor or Conan comics that have come across, you know, the desk. So right from the start, the concept of being able to take familiar characters and really just change up the entire circumstances around them was really engaging. I thought it was a really great idea, really leaning into the possibilities of this new phase of Marvel Cinematic Universe with the idea of multiverse, multiple threads, multiple iterations of the same characters going through multiple different paths through established events. And what I appreciated the most, when those slight changes spiralled things off into completely new, unexplored territory. I thought that was really exciting to see. And with that preamble out of the way, what better place is there to start than the very first episode, which is, what if... Captain Carter was the first Avenger. This is the episode where the, I guess, the Nexus event, the single change to the established timeline, is that instead of going to watch Steve Rogers receive the super serum from the viewing balcony, as Peggy Carter did in the original movie, she instead elects to stay on the floor, and so is poised to react when the assassin who killed Dr. Erskine in the original movie makes his move. With her presence in the room, meaning that things go off differently, Captain Carter is the one who ends up with the super serum, and then the story snowballs from that point. This is, for the first episode, 
I understand why they did what they did in keeping pretty much to the same beats of the original Captain America movie, just with the character swap. It's the sort of thing that you want people coming into the series to have a baseline of familiarity with that they can sort of get the idea of what's happening before you start to go really nuts with it down the line. However, unfortunately for me, I've seen all the points of this first episode that other people and other commentators seem to have really loved were all the points that I was really disappointed by. The really close parallels of Peggy Carter's journey through the war to Stephen Rogers' journey through the war as Captain America was a little bit um, deflating. It didn't really get me that excited for the series when I sat down and watched it for the first time because I wasn't so much interested in just seeing how the same events would play out with a different character in the lead role. I was more interested to see in when you make a change into a world, how big that snowball can get by the time it reaches the bottom of the hill. And although there were a, there were a lot of changes in this episode with Steve Rogers piloting an Iron Man suit, for one thing, and the Red Skull changing his plan from using the energy of the Tesseract to build weapons to using the Infinity Stone in the way it's intended to open up a portal and bring a creature through. Both of these changes were, you know, interesting, but seemed to be altering those characters of you know, Steve Rogers and the Red Skull in a way that didn't seem related to the changes that had been made from the what-if moment. We always knew that Steve Rogers, at his heart, at his core, is a, gr a good man and a hero, so we don't really need to see him play the same role again in this episode, just inside a suit, rather than it being just himself. And it seems unusual to me, I don't know a lot about the character of the Red Skull, but certainly from what was introduced in the original MCU movie, he seems to be someone who wouldn't willingly set aside his megalomania in order to defer to a greater power. Like every single part of that original movie was him being the Superman. He was the Ubermensch. His vision should go across the globe and all that. Whereas in this one, it was like, oh, I can't wait to open up the portal and get the Hydra guy to come here and fix everything up. That It just didn't seem to gel with the original character. And there didn't seem to be any real reason that the nexus point in that universe affected sort of those changes as well. But all that aside, it was a really strong way to open the series by giving us those elements that we were familiar with and changing things up just enough that it was sort of new and fresh while being what we recognised. And it set the stage pretty well for what was to come next, which was, again, starting an episode with some elements we were familiar with, but then taking the step of spinning out into something that is completely different. Although it recycles the same locations that the movie that it is taking off originally had, the entire purpose for and the characters who are there is completely different. So it makes that entirely fresh rather than the same set dressings of World War II, but you're still fighting World War II. And of course, the second episode was What If... T'Challa became Star-Lord. 
Now, this has got a lot of acclaim for obvious reasons, because the performance by Chadwick Boseman in this role is not only hilarious, it is fantastic. And it has the bittersweet quality of being one of his last full appearances in a Marvel role. Because although this T'Challa character will return, and T'Challa will be there in other episodes in smaller supporting roles, or just to be killed off quickly, this one really sort of delves into the character and really makes you fall in love with him in a whole new way. Because in this episode, the Nexus event is where when the Ravagers go to Earth to pick up Peter Quill, instead of dealing with himself, Yondu sends Taserface and Mr. Gunn to go down to the planet and do it themselves. And of course they balls it up because... I mean, come on. Instead of heading for the character that they're supposed to look for, they head off to the highest concentration of celestial energy on the planet, which happens to be Wakanda. They scoop up T'Challa, and then T'Challa goes off into space to become Star-Lord. This episode is so full of absolutely hilarious moments. From the opening bit, which completely mirrors the opening on Morag, from the original Guardians movie, but this time the name Star-Lord not just commanding awe and respect, but fawning admiration from Ronan's enforcers who were there to take the Infinity Stone. But it becomes immediately clear just how different this universe is now from that one change. Yondu has already gone through his character journey by the time this one starts and is acting as a real father figure. T'Challa managed to talk down Thanos in a conversation and Thanos the Glad Titan is now a part of the Ravager crew. The Collector, apparently running unopposed in the power vacuum left after this, has become a seriously buff dude. There's just a lot of really cool changes and Nebula out from the thumb of her father's influence, has just blossomed into this really interesting take on her character. Just a completely different style of presentation, but at the core, she's still got that sort of cunning that made her such an interesting character through the later few movies in the Infinity Saga. It's an episode that's just continually filled with just better and better ramp. It's built like a heist, and it's got all the great elements that a good heist storyline will have with multiple characters all filling their roles, betrayals, double betrayals, secret plans, a final confrontation that just blows the lid off things. It's really fantastic, and it plays to all the strengths of having the idea of a multiverse and being able to fully work within that. This was probably one of my favourite episodes, Um, certainly for the comedy value. I thought that just the the comedy beats that were in here hit really well where they were placed. It was surgical precision and just had a really... The whole episode had a really great feeling to it. And it's impossible to go past just the sort of emotion of seeing the final few scenes of this where T'Challa is returned to Wakanda and his father... And we kind of get to see a reverse of T'Challa's character arc in the original movies where he starts by saying goodbye to his father and here he ends by saying hello and 
And knowing again, of course, that this was one of Chadwick Boseman's final portrayals of the character lends a sort of a bittersweet quality to the entire experience. The next episode, however, was my favourite of the entire series. And that was, what if the world lost its mightiest heroes? This one is set up like a murder mystery, where instead of recruiting everyone to the Avengers initiative, you've got Nick Fury going around the early stages of the MCU and trying to recruit everybody, but everyone just keeps dying around him. And there's some actor that's involved that you don't know, and you're trying to work it out at the same speed that Nick Fury is trying to work it out. And one of the reasons I really like this episode so much is because I did not figure out who was doing all this. Not even the scene where Black Widow was fighting this invisible force. I was thinking, who in the Marvel Universe can turn invisible? Not who in the Marvel Universe can fight when you can't see them, which are two completely different takes on the same core premise. I thought it was wonderful to have the Nexus event in this one being that Hope Van Dyne, Hank Pym's daughter, joined S.H.I.E.L.D. and ended up getting killed off on a mission. And I'm pretty sure that the... I can't remember it off the top of my head now, but I I seem to recognise it at the time that the mission that she's mentioned to have been killed on was a mission that I think Black Widow had mentioned somewhere that went bad in the sometime in the MCU's past in one of the movies. So that being the Nexus event then drives Hank Pym into this wild revenge rampage where he presumably uh, kills Yellow Jacket and takes the suit. And armed with the Yellow Jacket technology and his own knowledge of Pym Particles, he then just goes on a rampage, just taking everyone away from Fury before he goes to attack Fury himself. As a narrative, it's got a few hammy and cheesy moments, like where he goes and kills Tony Stark through a hypodermic needle less than a metre away from Nick Fury, where he, I suppose, could have just killed Fury then if he'd really wanted to. And if he was sort of that angry at the man. But I appreciated the the slow, methodical deconstruction of all of these familiar scenes to let everything just go wrong and just everything ramp up to the, to the final point where Fury is forced to make an alliance with Loki who's come to avenge the killing of his brother on Midgard and who ends up then just deciding to step into the role of Earth's Conqueror. Since he's here and all, you know. I thought that was really fun. I thought the entire murder mystery was engaging. And because everything was so focused early in the MCU, I'd completely forgotten about Ant-Man. And just the, uh, just the narrative remembering who is around at what time and in what state they're at at those points of the timeline was something, it sort of jerks me into the realisation of, oh gosh, there really is a lot they can do with this. And uh, that and that was very exciting. So personally for me, that left the next episode in the series, episode four, what if Doctor Strange lost his heart instead of his hands, with a pretty high bar to clear. And for the most part, it did it. This is a really good episode and sets up a really fascinating character with Strange Supreme the entity who is so powerful he managed to just destroy his entire universe when he went back in time to try to change a key moment in time 
an absolute point which could not be undone, and in doing so created a paradox which unraveled reality around him. The only thing that stops this episode from being possibly my favourite, because it's got everything else in it, it's got a completely unique story arc that just plays, it takes the one change, plays out the entire MCU to the point that we are at now, and then continues. So it's completely fresh. It's completely interesting. The Doctor Strange character is almost identical to the one we know. Almost. And he is so close that the path he goes down is entirely credible. There is no point in this where you think to yourself, oh god, that doesn't seem like it's in character. This must be a really different guy. It's got, you know, his arrogance. It's got his power. It's got so much going for it. But it also has an identical plot to, like, the, what, 2002 film or something of H.G. Wells' Time Machine, where he's just, he's a time traveller going back in time over and over again, trying to stop his wife from dying on a specific date, and is then later told he can't do that, because unless she had died then, he wouldn't have got to the position where he's trying to go back in time and save her, thus the paradox. And it plays out almost exactly the same way as I remember that movie playing it as well, where no matter what he goes back in time to try, no matter that he goes back thousands of times and watches her die thousands of different ways, he can never save her. And that's not a... Firstly, it's not a model of time travel I particularly enjoy. I like it but not as much as other models. And it's also a model of time travel which is not, or doesn't seem to be, consistent with the quantum realm time travel ideas posited in Avengers Endgame. And whilst I understand that these are working on different principles, one is using the time stone which is locked into its own linear path of time, and the other is taking the a a quantum approach so you can have juxtaposition of multiple states of being on on one thing it's still almost disappointing to see this very tried and true very dated approach to time travel being sort of reinvented in this episode but not reinvented enough that it's something new just just sort of it's more of a repetition than a reinvention for the time machine because it's got the exact same plot as the time machine. But I do love the character, I love Strange Supreme, and I really appreciate where this episode ended with him, and what that meant then for the rest of the series. We then go on to, I guess, my second favourite episode of the entire Lost, which is What If Zombies! Speaking of tropes that have been played to death, this is an episode where... When Heimdall sends the Hulk back down to Earth, he smashes into a world which has been overrun by zombies. I liked their method of introducing the zombie plague in this one, and I also really liked the way that it managed to spread so quickly from things like Captain America getting bitten by a teeny tiny Ant-Man zombie. I thought that was hilarious. And seeing the characters using their superhero abilities or their technological abilities whilst zombified was very interesting. 
and I can't stress enough how excited I was to get a version of the Fainus Principle. The idea that Ant-Man could have ended the entire Infinity Saga by shrinking down, going up Thanos' anus, and expanding to explode the guy. It wasn't exactly the same in this episode, but it was just close enough to be a deliberate directorial nod to all those nerds out there who were obsessed with the Mad Titan's butthole. Like I said at the outset, the Marvel Zombies comic run is one of the few that I have read. I went through a bit of a zombies phase. And this single episode does the concept much better than the entire comic run managed to do. It's more interesting. It plays into its strengths as a tired trope. Because you've got characters like Peter Parker, who's really genre savvy. And that injects not only some humour into it all, but also... I'm sick and tired of seeing zombie media when no one's ever heard of the idea of zombies before. We all know by now, if a zombie outbreak happened tomorrow, everybody would know how to react because we've had such a grounding in popular media on zombie fiction. And so it was good to see this one acknowledge that and then go on to play into the strengths of the tropes and avoid as many of the drawbacks as it could. It was a truly interesting episode. And although people who aren't so keen on on zombie fic can absolutely point to all the same points that I said about the Doctor Strange one, where this episode just kind of draws together a whole lot of different zombie movie or zombie TV show plots that have already been done and just mashes them together into this gestalt thing. I feel that it pulled it off really well and it's almost more impressive to take something that has been done so much and so much so recently and turn it into something that's interesting and fresh. On the downward slope towards the end of the series, we had episode 6 which was What If Killmonger Rescued Tony Stark and that was a really interesting one where you take the Nexus event of Tony Stark being captured by the Ten Rings and you switch out his guards to include Eric Killmonger from the Black Panther movie. This is an episode I really liked. It didn't make the top few only because, again, it was a little disappointing to see it hit so... It was basically just the plot of Black Panther over again. Like, it... Killmonger's plan didn't seem to be any really any different to his plan in the Black Panther movie, ex, you know, just with uh, those few little sort of cosmetic changes. But he man- he is such a chess master in this episode. It's fantastic because even you've got characters who know exactly what he's doing, but they just can't pin it on him. And... When you see those scenes with Pepper Potts and Shuri, who are just in the same room as him and 100% know what he is doing, but you can just see the the gears turning in their little cartoon brains where they're, they're just trying to figure out, well, but, but, well, what's my next... How do I do this? How do I how do I make everybody else understand and not come off sounding like the crazy person in the room? 
It's fantastic. I don't know whether it's the strength of the voice acting or of the animation or of both, but those moments are superb. And because, of course, as the as the audience, you know from the get-go that he's up to something because that's his character. And it's pretty clear from early on that although this is a different Killmonger, it is not a different Killmonger. It's kind of fun to see him get one over Tony Stark. It's really interesting to see him just get one over the entire nation of Wakanda somehow. And it really plays on just the guilt that T'Chaka has over the murder of his brother. And it makes things like, you know, the immense trust they place on him so quickly, it lends it some credibility because he's deliberately playing on this this traumatic event from T'Chaka's past and using that to full advantage in the vulnerable emotional state that the king is in after just having lost his own son when all of a sudden here's your nephew who can just step into that role what a coincidence right and you can you can see in those scenes he is playing T'Chaka just like we've seen him play everyone else in the episode up to that point and it's built enough of a audience understanding on his real talent for this that by the time you're getting to those end bits it it's it's still credible that he manages to do this so slimily <laughs> so easily it's really good it's a really fun episode for all horrible horrible reasons and the scene at the end where you have Killmonger becoming the next Black Panther and going into the spiritual realm and just hearing T'Challa ask him, you know, was it worth it, cousin, is really good. It's something about the delivery of that line is just with such pathos. It is excellent. The whole episode is really fun. Um, It's horrifying, but it's good. Episode 7, though, is an episode which is entirely fun. It is fun. Fun, fun, fun from start to finish. It had me just rolling in laughter. And that episode is What If Thor Were an Only Child? It could also have been titled What If Thor Was a Frat Boy? Or What If Viva Las Vegas? This episode was a much needed breath of fresh air. And it comes at exactly the right point because the next two episodes in the series are going to get really heavy, really quick. But... What if Thor was an only child is, it's like Ragnarok on steroids. The laughs are there. The portrayal of Thor is hilarious. And there's, look, there's not a lot to say about this episode. There are a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of really great comedy, like with Darcy and Howard the Duck, with how Jane Foster just deals with everything throughout the entire episode. Thor's complete oblivious, just cruise through the thing the scenes with Thor and Loki in this are really really great just the whole thing is really it's just a fun episode so many returning characters in so many different roles familiar and not familiar and just the the sheer panic on a planetary scale that mum is going to come and check your room is sublime it's really good and of course we can't fail to mention that this is the biggest appearance of Captain Marvel as well. 
which is really good. We get to see sort of a knockdown drag out fight, which, you know, it's, I say knockdown drag out, but it's still clear that, you know, no one's trying to take anyone's head off here. And it's real. it makes a bit of a, it's a fun sort of biff boff part of the episode. And it was really hilarious just to see Carol Danvers character just really, again, lean into all the things that people had said about her, like all the, you know, the snarky little, uh, the snarky little Twitterati had wanted to say about, uh, hashtag not my Captain Marvel and, and just sort of thumb, thumb the nose at all that was, uh, hilarious and really well-deserved. But we are starting to run out of time on the episode here, so we need to get to the final two episodes, which I'll discuss as a single unit, because they really are, which is episode 8, What If Ultron Won? And episode 9, What If The Watcher Broke His Oath? These two episodes, as a finale to the series, work really well. The Ultron episode is not so interesting for the concept of the episode, but interesting because of what it plays into in the following. Taking the idea of what if Ultron won, meaning that Ultron would then sweep across the entire universe and eradicate everyone, uh, just picking up the Infinity Stones off Thanos along the way, is really interesting. And although a lot of people have sort of complained, I guess, about how easily Thanos went out just like a punk as soon as he arrived on planet Earth because Ultron just slices him in half... um, I think the point that people are missing when they complain about that is that we are dealing with an infinite series of realities. In Infinity, there's got to be a reality where Thanos is a punk and Ultron is a badass. And that just happens to be the reality this episode is taking place in. It doesn't take anything away from the Thanos in the series that we saw, because this is a completely different Thanos and a completely different Ultron. And the first half of this episode really just plays out kind of like just, you're just checking the boxes. Like, all right, we need to get through Ultron destroying the entire universe so that we can get to the point of the episode that this episode wants to focus on, which is Ultron, having reached this level of cosmic awareness, is able to breach the walls of reality and get into where the Watcher has been narrating on all of the episodes up to date. And then you get the sort of the standard superhero fight between the Watcher and Ultron, where they just they smash each other through different versions of realities, battling across the multiverse for the multiverse. And there's some really fun, interesting moments in that. But the point of the episode is really to set up for the final scene where now you have Ultron standing, you know, the man behind the glass. He can see everything and much like the um the cricketers in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy takes one look at it all and goes, well, this has got to go, hasn't it? Setting the stage for what if the Watcher broke his oath, where we have a just a defeated and beaten down Watcher heading to the pocket universe where Strange Supreme still sits and acknowledging that he can't do all this alone. So he gathers a team from all of the mainline characters we've seen in the series to date. You've got Captain Carter, Star-Lord, T'Challa, Party Thor, Killmonger, and Strange Supreme. But you've also got an extra here where you've got Gamora coming in from the episode which didn't make it to air in this season. 
And they all sort of get together, make a plan to attack Ultron. And then the rest of the episode is basically a, a, a fight with Ultron where, again, you see that while the Watcher may not have succeeded in his uh, in his Biffo War, he can definitely outthink any sort of situation where he he knows these characters so well from having watched them through all these episodes. And we know them well enough as well to sort of predict how things are going to play out. Especially when Black Widow comes on the scene from the previous episode where she and Zola, uh, the computer virus version of Zola, turn up to join the fight against Ultron. So it all sort of plays out kind of the way you'd expect, right up to the point where once Zola is in Ultron's body, he kind of decides, well, this is good, I like this. And Killmonger, of course, decides, hey, Infinity Stones, I'll take them. So then you <laughs> you have it, you have a moment there where Doctor Strange, who probably could have done this entire fight on his own, realises for the sake of the audience why he didn't just do this entire fight on his own. Because the entire purpose of it was not to defeat Ultron, but was for the Watcher to manoeuvre everybody into a specific position. Much like Doctor Strange's plan in Infinity War and Endgame was to manufacture a specific outcome. You see the Watcher pulling the same trick here. And it it comes off really well. It's a very satisfying resolution to the entire series where you don't have any of the main characters, any of the mainline characters that you've come to learn to grow and love or hate through this. They don't contravene their own character sakes in the final episode. Everyone plays true to type and all of those different strengths are used really well narratively as strengths to stitch everything together. Right up until you get the point where then the Watcher sends everybody back to their home universes and sets up for season two, where you seem to have in the Captain Carter universe, we're going to go into the Winter Soldier with a Winter Soldier version of the Hydra Stomper, piloted presumably by Steve Rogers. Party Thor and Jane Foster seem to be getting along pretty well. Star-Lord is ready to go off and have his whole new series, which unfortunately was stymied a little bit. Whether they'll get a new voice actor for T'Challa, I don't know, but I sincerely doubt, because I think a lot of the strength of that role was and is recognised as Chadwick Boseman himself, so without him, I'm fairly certain they won't continue with that. And you've got Gamora going back to her universe for whatever comes next with that, we might see in Season 2. Strange Supreme overlooking uh, his own pocket universe sort of acting as a watcher himself now, sort of inducted into the society, I guess, by proxy. And, of course, you've got Natasha Romanov being returned to a universe that lost their Black Widow, being the one what-if Earth lost its mightiest Avengers. However, I can't help but note that there is another universe out there somewhere which just happened to have lost its Black Widow, which maybe would have appreciated one back... But, of course, it's nice to keep everything self-contained. Overall, I thought this series had a lot of potential that it lived up to. It really explored a whole bunch of elements in a whole lot of interesting ways. The positives by far outweigh the negatives and what little disappointments there were 
in some just some of the ones that seemed a little bit to be treading retreading a little bit too much ground those episodes the detracting qualities of that were not still not enough to make it an a episode i didn't enjoy watching like to a fault these were great episodes they were really fun or really emotive where they needed to be and taken together they just make a they make a really powerful series which speaks to a lot of the potential that this next phase of the MCU has it's a potential that i really hope they can pull off uh they've done an amazing job so far obviously with playing to strengths and making really for the most part very strong narrative choices across the series so i'm optimistic to see where season 2 of what if will go and if the approach to what if is similar to the approach that the MCU movies going forward that are touching on multiverse issues if they're going to take the same sort of approach that they did to this series i think that we're going to be in for a pretty strong uh, new next phase of MCU movies because it's very easy to stuff up an infinite variety of storytelling because much like you know much like the room full of monkeys at typewriters banging out Shakespeare's Hamlet for one masterpiece you get a near infinite amount of dreck and i'm looking forward to seeing what the balance of masterpiece to fall short will be in the next uh, in the next phase of marvel's development But what did you guys think about it all? Did you enjoy these episodes? Did the ones that I enjoyed hit the same points for you or did you have other ones that you really enjoyed and felt like I didn't give proper credence to in my very very long but individually very brief summation here? If you want to continue the conversation on these episodes, then jump into the Talking Fiction Discord server. There'll be a link to that in the show notes and I can't speak for everybody else on the server but I certainly am very keen to get deep in the weeds about these episodes and really just chew on them for a while because each one of these could have been an entire podcast by itself for 40 minutes and lord knows there's enough content out there that does exactly that so absolutely hit us up otherwise I look forward to talking to you all soon in the next episode of Terry Talks Fiction